Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin and once again we have gathered round the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days and in no particular order, here we go! Starting with fact number one, and that is Andy. My fact is that there's a theory that the Bronte sisters all died young because they spent a lot of their life drinking graveyard water. Ooh. Ooh. You said graveyard water as though we're all familiar with <laughs> yes. it. It's like spring water. You've all seen or... it on the show, but still sparkling. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah, well, no, you're right. It's not, a, it's not a thing anymore, but I think graveyard water was a much bigger thing in the 19th century before proper... No, it wasn't. Hygiene... <laughs> no, I just mean before, a lot of crazes, before, hy- before hygiene standards and before proper... You know, water yeah. pipe. So this is water that has happened to go through a graveyard. It's filtered, yeah. It's filtered, filtered. through. Right. <laughs> Whenever you buy a bottle of water and it says filtered, yeah. that's what it's it means. Through. Yeah. No, so they, they lived in this town called Howarth, which is in West Yorkshire. And it was an extremely sickly place. Uh, very low life expectancy. Excrement running down the streets. I mean, you know, ba- bad ventilation. You said it was Yorkshire. It's, sorry, yeah, okay. Um, and also, the Bronte family home, the parsonage they lived in, right next to it, had a graveyard and there Ooh. there is a <laughs> and there, um it was very overcrowded as well mm. and there is a strong theory or a strong suggestion that it's possible that decomposing matter from the graveyard would have filtered into the water supply and that might have really banjaxed mm. the town's overall health those who were using kind of public water sources mm. yeah it definitely would have gone into the village which is in like a valley but yeah and Presumably, there weren't taps back then, so they must have been collecting water from somewhere. So they so lived they in the parsonage and they had their own well, yes. um, the oh, Brontes. Okay. Uh, and what I find really interesting is that the well was cleaned in 1847, and that was the first time it had been cleaned in 20 years. Uh, and the father of the Brontes wrote that they'd taken eight yellow tin cans out of it. That's how polluted it was. But it was in 1848 and 1849 that Bramwell, Emily and Anne all died. So the year afterwards. Mm -hmm. So the year after their well was out of use, perhaps. Right. So maybe they stopped using the well for a bit and then they started using the more common water that everyone else was drinking. And then that Mm. might have made them sick. Did they not think when they were drinking something that looked like Gatorade that maybe... (laughs) Maybe that wasn't well, going to be good for them. if it's the only thing you can drink, yeah, no, really. what do you do? We actually say the Brontes died young, but, you know, they lived at ripe old ages by comparison. Did to they? Be, to be, well, Absolutely. Not, I mean, not they really. They lived to 29, 30, 31 and 39. Exactly. So, the average yeah. life expectancy, obviously, one has to account for the 40% of people who die in early childhood. Um, but, yeah, it was 25. Um, and yeah. I reckon Charlotte at 38 would have seemed like an old hag by the time she copped it. But yeah, every, all the others did die pretty young, except their dad, who lived at 84. Wow, yeah. guy. It was a very sickly place. Um, and the town was inspected in 1850 by a man who was called Benjamin Herschel Babbage. And um, he, his findings basically were that it was just an extremely unhealthy place. It was poorly ventilated. Some people were living in cellars. And it was their dad, actually, who got this guy in to check the water supply. So it was the year right. after three of his children had died. Oh, and gosh. he said, we need to do something about this. Mm. Do you think after the first child died he was like oh, i must get this water checked and then the second kid dies he's like damn it i really must get this water well, checked the first one was bramwell who died of alcoholism yes actually the, the he had two daughters who died before oh, that so they course. had two daughters who yeah. died like 
14, 15, didn't they? Which sounds yeah. very, which is very sad. And they were in the school, which was right at the bottom of the hill where the water definitely would have been mm. pretty rank. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah. Bramwell died of alcoholism. But the pub where he drank in is the first place you get to <laughs> after the, if you look at the map, it's house, graveyard, pub. And apparently they used to make their beer out of the oh, water that no. came through no way. the oh. graveyard, yeah. So is it possible then that we've maligned him and he didn't die of alcoholism? Well, he definitely was an alcoholic as well. Yeah. Like, I think people people do say that he might have died of TB and he was an alcoholic, but yeah. you know he might have died mm. of other stuff as well. So we might have unfairly maligned him. There was opium involved as well, I think. Yeah. Wasn't there? It, wasn't, it, <laughs> it was wasn't, a concoction of stuff. He wasn't, wasn't living a, healthy a very healthy life. <laughs> <laughs> say that. But yeah, it's yeah. always said that alcoholism, drawing, you know, not the graveyard water. No, yeah, you're I, right. You're I, right. I, I'm with Dan here. I actually think that the Bramwell <laughs> myth uh, may have been, you know, taken to the extreme of like this killed him. And actually, I'm not sure we totally have evidence but um, Babbage's report was funny he was particularly appalled by the toilet setup in the village which was um, consisted of two toilets that were shared each by like 12 families so they were out in the street and he was appalled by the public view of them which I don't think contributes to people's ill health uh, you might mean do. that people could see you while you're pooing yeah he basically uh, said uh, there's oh, in fact he said there's two toilets that are just on the public street in view of the houses and of passers-by whilst <laughs> a third is perched upon an eminence commanding the whole length wow. of the main street wow. <laughs> have wow. you ever been like have you ever been to like a restaurant or something that's on the top of a really high building and then sometimes they put the toilet and they have pretty much a window because there's nothing else can look in oh, and wow. you can poo and look out over the whole no. city I've no, I've never seen I that. Uh, that no. I can't remember where I've been and done that, but it's really, it's something. It's quite something. That sounds oh, quite uncommon. Wow. You said it as though it might be a yeah. standard thing in high buildings, but I'm not when sure I think it's about normal. it, yeah. No, actually, no, my local Greg's has one of those. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You so, can sit in Greg's and as an eminence over the whole of yeah. South London. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Brontes in general, they're putting them back together in a way are they well, they're like cut, other pretty much so basically all the contents of the house were sold off after Patrick who's the father Pop Bronte he died in 1861 <laughs> and all the contents were sold off because you know you have a new parson who comes in and the furniture changes uh, yeah. all that because he was a uh, he was a curate yeah. vicar priesty guy not a priest because um, he had like six children um, but the Bronte Society they've been putting the house back together which is very exciting wow. and they've been slowly slowly buying at auction various bits of Bronte paraphernalia oh cool so there was a table that they wrote at one kind of normal, medium-sized dark wood table, yeah. £580,000 it's been bought wow. for. Wow. Been bought yeah. But did they all write at this table? I think a lot of them did. I yeah. don't know if any key works were definitely pinned on that table, but it was the writing table. Do you think, that's actually, a big table. Yeah, do you think, like, as a writer that you are, and mm. we all are, really, mm. do, do you think that really now we should get actually quite a nice ornate table because in the future <laughs> yeah. they're going to look at it and go oh, that table from Ikea was like yeah. yeah what's the point of putting that in a museum exactly yeah. I like um, Terry Pratchett's table where he wrote most of his novels um, as soon as he passed away his assistant Rob put a glass plate over the table oh. so that every single scuff mark every single you know mug that's uh, cool. where and yeah is is there now for all time it's a That's great idea awesome. nice. i think like chewing gum underneath it <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah bogeys all yeah. Over. um another really cool item i don't know um if it was at auction that they had to buy it back mm. or whether they just still have it but charlotte bronte was given a bit of napoleon's coffin 
which really? is really cool. How did they get his coffin? He was dead. Oh yeah. How did it, like because mm. he had about but he had about seven coffins I think Napoleon he was inside multiple layers like a Russian doll like a Russian doll yeah yeah really he's there was a smaller coffin it's quite that, awkward for Napoleon <laughs> <laughs> poor guy yeah. <laughs> yeah do me like a French pastry or Rub something come on <laughs> <laughs> um, did you say Charlotte got Napoleon's coffin yeah yeah from that's... her from her sexy Belgian tutor who she was in love with oh. really he was a married man so no, I don't think any impropriety ever occurred but she she loved him and they had quite a good friendship as well so right. yeah because she wasn't the big Napoleon fan. This is mm. the great thing about the Brontes. When they were younger, they actually wrote more words than when they were adults because mm. they wrote these amazing books together, these fairy tales. And um, they were they created worlds. They created the world of Angria and Gondol. <laughs> and I think this was based on some toy soldiers that uh, Bramwell got yeah. given by their dad. But they all played right. with them and they all claimed a soldier. And Emily claimed Wellington. And then Bramwell claimed Napoleon. And they'd sort of like fight each other and stuff. Oh. And then the other two claimed a gravy boy and a waiting boy but I think they upgraded them at some point to the Antarctic explorers Parry and Ross when a they gravy felt. boy a gravy boy yeah again just like I said graveyard water like it was yeah. a thing yeah. I don't yeah, think yeah. Gravy I don't boy. think a gravy boy is a you thing you know in American football they have a water boy who brings on all of their drinks and stuff well, I do now yeah, yeah, yeah well, <laughs> well gravy boy is the same in cricket <laughs> <laughs> on your cucumber sandwiches yeah yeah <laughs> just bring in some gravy <laughs> was she quite obsessed with Wellington Emily um, I, I, I don't know how obsessed she was she, just, she, she probably played him was. she probably I think she was him. and I think she met him later in life in was like she? his really? late life Napoleon was yeah. buried in a lot of coffins like a beef Wellington yeah wasn't he? Oh, no. <laughs> That's an even worse one. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Beef Wellington doesn't have multiple pastry layers. Puff it pastry, isn't it? I suppose it is, it is layered. It's got a yeah. layer of uh, mushrooms and stuff. Yeah, right. he was covered in Duxelles. <laughs> uh, yeah. What, just on their, on their writing as kids and yeah. the cool stuff that they had, okay. um, I don't know if any of these remain, but um, they wrote in tiny books sometimes. So some of their stories they wrote in books that were small enough for their dolls or their soldiers oh, to read, cool. uh, which sounds so cool. The writing is microscopic and yes. um, I think one, there was one book that in fact we do have some of them because there are photos and they're about like the, the size of the thumb a human thumb yeah. really so we know there's one because actually the Bronte house has bought one of them back have they for a million pounds a million yeah. the, the tiny book or the, the tiny oh, book why are they it's getting got, all the cash I don't know I, I have no idea where, where how they're funding it oh actually I do know how they might be funding it because the actual Brontes themselves were funded indirectly through piracy so no. wait so grandpa bronte he was a trader right. but also he had plenty of dealings with cornish pirates who committed actual murders wow. and a lot of his money a lot of his estate would have come from his nefarious activities that's cool and the bronte cool. sisters paid for their novels to be published and they did a lot of that thanks to money they got from their aunt on that side of the family so wait, basically they were pirate funded so you saying that the current bronte estate well, has saying, some sort of treasure chest that they're still i mean billions <laughs> out where are they getting these millions from well, <laughs> they I, pay for anything in doubloons if you notice that <laughs> at the auctions i read an article about the bronte society who uh, run the museum i don't know yeah. if it's the same yeah, yeah. people yeah it is but yeah. apparently they made a loss last year of a hundred thousand pounds uh, and actually, because not many people have been visiting, I think possibly due to COVID, mm. um, they've been asking firms in the UK who use the name Bronte, they're saying, well, you know, okay, fine, you're allowed to use it, nothing we can do, but can you not give us a bit of money for it? Mm. Uh, and Richard Wilcox, who's the chairman of the Bronte Society, he said there are dozens of companies um, who are selling Bronte stone 
cooked chicken, <laughs> outdoor clothing. <laughs> like, Have you never had a Bronte chicken? Bronte fried oh, yeah, chicken. Yeah, it's lovely. It's been, uh, uh, how's it cooked? It's sort of, they leave it on a moor yeah. for three days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very moorish. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also spring water. And what <gasps> I found is that there is Bronte water that you can buy from the Amazing. springs in Howarth. <laughs> no. Oh, no, we've so ruined good. their industry with this podcast. Oh, um, and I just want to kind of balance it out to say yeah. that they are part of a company called Waterlogic UK. And they recently announced the world's first COVID secure range of drinking water dispensers. Okay. Actually, weirdly, the Bronte Society themselves, just on Bronte merch, they, they do. Yeah. They sell a Branwell Bronte, I think it's a wine bottle stopper oh or a corkscrew but given that he died of alcoholism I mean, it's <laughs> amazing that's amazing it's on the nose yeah, they do. I wonder it? if they get a cut from all the companies then that are in this town where they grew up well that's cause... what they're saying they don't and at the moment there's no legal reason that they should because yeah. they've really yeah. gone for it haven't they they're like yeah. all the salons are like Jane Hare you know and stuff like that they've all <laughs> that's really every good. salon yeah. as well that's very really confusing good. Jane Hare. <laughs> I love that so Charlotte Bronte was a teacher and in 1836 she started writing about her experience experience as a teacher and she's just so mean to the students it's amazing there's one extract which says am i to spend all the best part of my life in this wretched bondage forcibly suppressing my rage at the idleness the apathy and the hyperbolical and most asinine stupidity of those fat-headed oats wow <laughs> like she did not like her teachers kids. listening to this are nodding along right now <laughs> that, that emily that was charlotte charlotte sorry yeah. sorry um i have a theory about bramwell bronte okay which is that he inspired a very famous film um Ooh, okay, give okay. Us a clue. okay it's um to do harvey with his okay no no i'm gonna give you a clue first otherwise did, i don't think you'll did get he there did he want to stop someone and his mum shot someone yeah oh jesus okay. christ okay you only know two films between you uh, oh, i know andy it's, knows it's, so avatar. it's avatar it's avatar so it's yeah. what yeah, yeah he was green yeah yeah blue, blue. 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 Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> one drop i was thinking of the hulk <laughs> <laughs> no so he um he basically had this affair we think um and this mm. is partly based on the biography of charlotte that was written by mrs gaskell very interestingly oh, yeah. so patrick the dad um commissioned mrs gaskell to write who we should say charlotte who is she Fa- Fa- famous, famous author Victorian famous british author. author did she have a yeah. first name Elizabeth, Elizabeth, but she always goes by Mrs. Bizarrely snobbish about that. Like yeah. when she wrote to George Eliot once, she said, um, "Love, love your stuff, George, but I wish I could be addressing a Mrs. rather than a Miss." Bit, given, that, given that she was writing to someone trading under a man's name, <laughs> yeah. an insane, an insane thing to say. Yeah. And also, don't upset George Eliot because you're going to get a big right hand. Yeah, yeah. she'll have exactly. you, and you will not come back from that. <laughs> um, but anyway, what we think is that Bramwell had an affair with this uh, much older woman. He was 25, and she was 43, and he was working as a governor, not a governess, governor, a governor, governor, okay. uh, tutor for her children, Lydia... Mrs. Doubtfire. <gasps> oh, exactly. Jesus. <laughs> I really uh, thought you were going to get it there. <laughs> you know it. So she's called Lydia Robinson. Uh. Um, and that's Bramwell Bronte's initials are BB. And in the film, the very famous film, The Graduate, obviously, where Mrs. Robinson is the older woman who seduces a younger man, mm. it's Benjamin Braddock, initials BB. Okay. Um, wow. And the author of the original book, I don't think, ever commented on whether it was inspired by that. But it was a famous affair between a young so, man and an older woman. Um, Charlotte had a superpower, by the way. Oh, yeah. She could see in the dark. How cool is that? Well, in the absolute pitch dark. Yeah, but, basically. I mean, really? that was there's there's stories that she was short-sighted, so short-sighted that if she was trying to even play piano, she couldn't read the sheet music. It was that 
it was okay. that bad for her. But as soon as the lights went out, as soon as it was <laughs> night time, her students said that she could read perfectly what what was on the page when no one else could. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's a good fact. It's I mean, a great fact. Um, <laughs> Thank you. We don't acknowledge each other's facts that often on the show, but when a truly good one comes up, I'm glad we do. It sounds like she was an inspiring teacher who, you know... No, a lot of people said taught this. her kids an imaginative mm. story. No, she could. She could. No, do, yeah, she I think could actually I do by that because I know that Anne, the youngest of the sisters, oh, what? She, she could hear she things could, over three hundred miles away. She, she could, could breathe underwater. Metal to her, <laughs> and then the green brother Bramwell, could, <laughs> only when he got angry, <laughs> destroy everything. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that if you swim too close to an iceberg, you can get sucked in. Mm. Not in danger of it. Not one of my top worries, I don't think. It's worth remembering. You never know when you might find yourself in that situation, Anna. You're right, on Titanic 2 or something. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. How do they do that? Do they generate their own currents near them? And... Mm, they do not. Well, they, in a way, they generate their own currents. Mm. They're moving around a lot. They're changing a lot. Icebergs mm. are melting all the time. Um, lots of changes inside an iceberg. And I'm especially talking about very big ones. And when things are moving around, currents get formed. Okay. Uh, and that's what happened. And I read this um, in... I was basically going through some old archives of an NPR radio show called Only a Game. And I found this article from 2001 uh, about someone called Jill Heineth. Mm. Uh, and she is one of the most remarkable people I've ever come across yeah, in the 20 years I've done this job. Uh, she was the first person to swim inside of an iceberg mm. that was a massive one that carved off from Antarctica. It was about the size of Jamaica. And she and her partner went to National Geographic and said, we'd like to do this article about diving through the caves of icebergs. And they said, wow, really, there are caves in icebergs? <laughs> and they went, yeah, we think so. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, they got some funding and they went and did it. And the story of her going through this iceberg is remarkable my um my wife's gone to swim in yeah, yeah. an iceberg the size of a caribbean island jamaica yes <laughs> <laughs> extraordinarily she went of her own accord <laughs> completely bizarre decision <laughs> yeah it sounds absolutely incredible doesn't it mm. and um some quite um dodgy moments in there Every moment, had. every moment is dodgy. Yeah, yeah, in there. yeah. Yeah. So first of all, they um, are next to this massive iceberg and they jump into the water. And the first thing that happens is you're jumping into ice cold water. And I don't know, I'm sure some of you might have done that before. It really hits you hard and it can really take the breath out of you. But in her case, she said it's like an ice cream headache, like the worst ice cream headache you've ever had is the first thing that you feel. And then you go down and down and down and you see an entrance and you enter this iceberg yeah. and it's all blue like she says it's like a robin's egg the floor's red and orange and yellow all these amazing colors and then it everything goes wrong (laughs) and she and so she and her partner they're swimming through it and after a while of taking lots of video footage they turn around to go back out but because it's a melting iceberg because it's a living beast that's just changing shape all the time their exit shuts (laughs) Mm. And they're stuck inside the iceberg. And she's going, I'm trying not to panic because if I start breathing too heavily, every breath I take is a precious breath. Mm. Every move you make. Every move Mm. I make. Um, (laughs) No one's watching her. (laughs) (laughs) So frightening. 
and so she they just wait they patiently wait and then a new opening happens it's it's like a weird mirror labyrinth you know like something you would see in a weird fantasy movie a new opening happens and they manage to get out and then they just have to wait a while to acclimatize don't they you can't just go straight back up so and so the people on the boat are thinking well they're gone yeah because they've heard all these changes and this carving and bits have fallen off and the people on the boat are like well that's the end of them then yeah but then they come back up they go up they tell their story it's all going nice you'd think that's enough we've explored it they go let's get back in there (laughs) let's do it again so they go for a second time well what are the chances of that going wrong again exactly i mean it's not gonna happen twice is it yeah it sounded like even there was a scary moment at one point on this expedition when she resurfaced and um the boat i think had drifted and she came up through a hole in the ice but the ice around her was so high she couldn't see anything Mm. and you're in the middle of the antarctic and her boat's disappeared and i think the boat just happened to swing around and she just glimpsed the stern because they had to take the anchor up and so it drifted while the anchor was up so they're nearly lost at sea basically in this moment so they get back on the boat and you think all right let's get back to home don't go back a third they go a third time (laughs) they go a third time and this time they get stuck inside and in order to get out um she basically got up to a point in the iceberg where there was a there was a gap at the top for them to climb out but it was 130 feet above their heads so you're looking at a climbing wall, basically, that's unclimbable, except... Yes, she... and I couldn't quite get it because she's yeah. out of the water by this time. Exactly. So she's just climbing up the iceberg. So she must be inside of the iceberg where there's a hole on the inside that it's leads like to tri- the It's like a triathlon kind of thing. You know, you yeah. do the swimming bit and then you do the climbing bit. When, when do you do the cycling bit? <laughs> <laughs> there's a bike at the, top of the, the top of the iceberg. across the top of the iceberg. Back <laughs> yeah. to the, but yeah, this yeah. is where the story genuinely turns a bit Brian Blessedy for me because I just think this is impossible. So this sorry, she climbs step. up 130 feet. But here's the thing, right? This is solid ice wall right yeah. so how do you climb ice wall and she thinks to herself hang on there's little animals that burrow themselves <laughs> into the ice wall which are creating natural handholds for me to do and apparently there's enough of these that she could scale well, 130 like, so it's a little fish worms, exactly or... the size of her finger which makes a little hole where it lives the fish finger yeah <laughs> <laughs> well the finger fish, the finger yeah, fish. Yeah, yeah 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 and they make holes in the iceberg and she can use them to grip onto and pull herself up so she climbs a... yeah i know it's blessed this is suddenly all the way up all the way 130 there are fish feet. living 100 feet up on this iceberg <laughs> 130 yeah. how do they get up there who knows yeah. i guess if the previous fish have gone up there the icebergs kind of... flip over all the time yeah don't know do we think as well as there being cracks in the iceberg oh there's some cracks in her story (laughs) and they all climb out this way 130 feet up and then they're back on the boat and And then they slid down the iceberg didn't they (laughs) um and so they're sitting on the boat not long afterwards i think they're having some drinks and some food Mm. and then suddenly they just hear screaming from other people on the boat and there's huge cracking noises and basically there's been such a melting point on the iceberg that it cracks in on itself and they go, well, if we were in there, we'd be dead. We'd be squished in a second. Wow. So then they go back again. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but what amazing. a story. Yeah, it is quite quite an That's odd incredible. thing to choose to do with your life. Um, wow. You must have to have a, a very unusual personality not to panic in all of these circumstances. Yeah. Like She did one other dive, um, yeah. which she described and it was into a really really small cave so she's a cave diver basically mm. so underwater cave diver and she was taking a scientist down there with her who obviously had been trained properly how to dive but um the scientist got wedged in this tiny cave and panicked luckily a tiny fish came <laughs> and nibbled her out <laughs> and it was a really nice story because earlier in the dive she had found that fish and it had a thorn in its fin yes and she pulled wow. the thorn out yeah, yeah. and then the fish came back to yeah. help her okay. wow. it's yeah. 
yeah. not a Bronte novel. It's this is real life. <laughs> Sorry, um, she got, so she's wedged. She's wedged. And they have a guideline, which is the only way you can find your way back to the entrance of the cave. Yeah. Because, you know, it's full of other channels and tunnels and stuff. So mm. you'll never find your way back otherwise. Right. The guideline's broken, uh, which is the only thing to lead them back to the entrance. Somehow, <laughs> and I'm not quite sure how Jill does this, while she's trying to fix the guideline, she loses her partner, who was previously wedged in a rock. Oh, no. Yeah, seems careless. A um, bit of an oversight. So she spends 73 minutes desperately looking for her partner while trapped in this cave. No idea if she's going to escape. It's extraordinary. And also thinking oh god I've killed this scientist how awkward um, but imagine the moment and maybe it's all worth it for this when finally she realised she has not only found her way to the entrance yeah. but she sees a little glimpse of light but there is waiting at the entrance the scientist who apparently her mask is just full of tears because the scientist has assumed that Jill's dead and she's probably going to die too uh, waiting at the entrance for her and um, she was alright and she said the weirdest thoughts go through your head like when she thought she was going to die you think things like um, oh my god I, I have to get home though my husband doesn't know how to do the taxes <laughs> <laughs> mm. wow. wow that's an amazing story and also it's given me a new respect for the word guideline yeah mm. you know we're so used to hearing about the conceptual guidelines the theoretical yes. uh, ones government guidelines suggest yeah that. exactly and actually guidelines can save your life yeah um, I was reading about what Heiner uh, studies in the other uh, areas yeah. of her life because yeah, loads and loads of uh, cave diving particularly and um, have you guys heard of the Hallocline no so she studies animals which are often found beneath the Hallocline and the Hallocline is a boundary between fresh water, which is higher up, and salt water, which is lower down. Hmm. And she says the boundary layer is as thin as a sheet of paper, but you can also see it when you're in the cave. When you dive. So as you go through it, everything goes blurry for a second because you've broken the, no way. the barrier between the two kinds of like water. Like going through a mirror, which takes you to a parallel universe. It's exactly like that. It's exactly like that. Um, wow. And then as soon as you get down to the salt water, everything snaps back into perfect clarity and focus. And Amazing. you look up and you can see the hallocline above you. But you oh. meet the salt water version of yourself. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the version yes, of yourself right. on the other side, yeah, yeah. upside down. Yes, yes, yes. And then you have to climb using fishy ice holes <laughs> downwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, early cave divers. Uh, the first UK cave diver was in 1935. And potentially this is the first world cave Quite diver. Quite late. That's what I thought, right? Um, I read in a few places this was the world's first cave diving and then a few others, it's first UK. It happened at Wookiee Hole oh, and it was a lady called Penelope Powell um, and she did it with a guy called Graham Balcom. I think that, yeah, I think it is in the UK because you find lots of accounts of other people trying similar things around the world and usually you just attach a hose to yourself and go deep in. But definitely yeah. in Britain. And it's thought of as the birth of cave diving. Um, yeah, as like a proper sport, basically. Yeah. So um, Balcom actually tried going into a different cave first and he made his own massively long snorkel out of a hose pipe and a woman's bike frame. And he almost died because that didn't work very well. Um, so... <laughs> Um, so they upgraded their gear, uh, in fact, when he went down with Penelope Mossy Pal, as she was called. Mm. But it was... Uh, sorry, sorry. Let's just go back to yep. that a second. Penelope Powell, mm. her nickname was Mossy. Mossy. And is she single? Never <laughs> uh, <laughs> had a nickname in the 30s. Mossy yeah. Powell. Wow. Mossy. Do we know why she had the nickname? She had just hair on the southern side of her body. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, but I know that you would have got along very well with yeah. her, Andy. Um, anyway, wow. they then at that point would have a hard hat and that would be attached to this hose called the diver's umbilical, which is a, basically a combined breathing hose and phone so that you could communicate with the surface. So they wow. went into Wookiee wow. Hole and they went, you know, many, many chambers in 
um, a long way, 170 foot they went in, and the air pumps have to be manually operated at the surface. So they were actually broadcasting on local Gosh. radio. Don't know why they didn't make this <laughs> only, national. Only local. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll We've be right you. back with <laughs> Wet Wet Wet. <laughs> you can tune in in the Cheddar Gorge area. It was an exciting time. Um, anyway, so they were broadcast, but um, their air would only last about 50 seconds. So they'd be saying, and it was mostly Graham who did the talking to the surface. And then about every 50 seconds, he'd have to say, actually, could I get some more air, please? And then the people at the surface would wow. have to pump air in. Um, just one more thing on the Wookiee Hole expedition. Uh, you can actually see a painting that was done 84 years after the actual event occurred. And it was done by a guy who's called Philip Gray, and he's an artist. And he went down into the place where she went. So he dove down with his with his painting equipment and a light what? and he did the painting down there it's the first of its kind you have um, to explain how so i'm guessing this is because because <laughs> it was a bit yeah. odd i'm it's, excited to hear your guesses I'm do guessing. you know the actual answer no. he right, went okay. 19 feet down so either he went down and there's a cave system where he could pop up into oh, dry bit possible. and he could illuminate it so he had everything let's say in a plastic bag ziplock and, and then he painted the painting there put it put the painting in the bag and then came back up which mm. i'm guessing must be the way um, he definitely painted it there he didn't go down and take a photo and then paint it no he painted it down there if you were to use water paints right but you use salt water and you're in the you're above the hollow climb. You're above the hollow climb. Yeah. Might it still work? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I think it's gonna be pretty blurry painting. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, it, is it possible the painting is just absolute dog shit? <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks pretty cool actually. Okay. I think it looks good. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I was looking at the world's deepest dive oh, yeah. in mm. scuba. This is, and it was by Ahmed Gaba in the Red Sea in 2014, and he went 1,090 feet down. The dive took 13 hours and 50 minutes. What? The thing wow. is, 13 hours, 50 minutes, yeah. how much of that do you think he was going down? Oh, not very much because you have to slowly come back up because exactly. otherwise you yeah. get the decompression stuff. Um, exactly. So he was coming back up for 10 hours of it. He went down for 15 minutes. Amazing. <laughs> and oh then had God. to come back up for 13 hours Incredible. and 35 minutes. What? <sighs> It's like when you're driving along the motorway and it's incredibly clear the way you're going and you can see the other side of the yeah, motorway. Yeah. Just shock a block. You think, oh, I've got to come back. I'm really going down to the station. I've got to come back through that. And <laughs> obviously if he went quicker, then he'd get the bends. He'd and, die. And yeah. Die. Yeah. 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 Do you know one, another thing that you can get um, from diving, uh, which isn't the bends and isn't mm. as dangerous as the bends, but is nitrogen narcosis. Oh, yeah. Which sounds actually quite fun. Um, it's basically getting drunk um, and it's also known as the martini effect divers compare it to drinking one martini for every 10 meters that you descend after 30 meters right. it doesn't really seem to cause much harm except to your judgment which can be a problem <laughs> well, well, sorry yeah. so let's just work this out so mm -hmm. after 30 meters yeah Every ten meters, it's one martini. Yeah, this guy went three hundred and thirty-two meters. Wow. So it's basically like he had thirty martinis. 30 martinis. Yeah. He's a, he was absolutely hammered. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was seeing some weird. Like, like my limit is two. As in, really nicely made martinis. Yeah. I like, think genuinely four. one of them gets me yeah. pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, How do you like your martinis, Mister Bond? <laughs> oh, give a fuck. Oh, this is fine. It's fine. Where's the fucking olive? <laughs> Bob looks at an empty jar of olives. It came with 33 olives. 
Wow. That's, um, that's incredible. It is. So there is so a way to get around yeah. it if you don't want to be completely pissed 300 meters underwater. Oh, you drink a small glass of milk before you go down, <laughs> don't you? Yeah. And that just helps to... Line your stomach yeah, yeah. A big roast dinner yeah. and then pop down. Um, <laughs> no, you use helium instead of nitrogen. So normally diving oh. equipment, oh, uh, the yeah. gas that you have is oxygen, nitrogen combination and the... Um, the ratio depends on kind of what kind of dive you're doing. But weirdly, you can replace nitrogen with helium and apparently we can kind of breathe that okay as well. Yeah. They don't quite know why this doesn't give you the narcosis, but helium is less fat soluble mm. and it oh. seems like the more soluble the gas, the more drunk you'll get. And so it's I guess... It's pretty bad though. If you're in trouble, it's like, I'm in a lot of trouble here. I'm really, really struggling. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Could someone help me? I'm really stuck. I'm getting sucked into this iceberg. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that every cup of mint tea you drink contains the essence of a hundred insects. <laughs> this is part of a study which was done by Trier University in Germany, a guy called Henrik Krehenwinkel. He's an ecological geneticist. And basically what he was looking into is how can we monitor invasive pests? How can we see if a insect is going endangered around the world? One thought that came about is this new development, which has been around for a bit now, eDNA. Mm. We mentioned it years ago in our book of the year 2019, where we talked about a New Zealand scientist called Neil Gemmell going to Loch Ness and trying to look for the dandruff of the Loch Ness Monster. Mm-hmm. It's basic, basically the idea is that you take a little scoop of something, whether it's like water, I guess, tea in this case, and then you look very, very closely at all the molecules in it and you can find remnants of the DNA, yep. can't you, of other stuff that once passed through that And the scene. E stands for environmental. Exactly. So it's things that have been in the area, like you might have breathed on it and given some of your DNA to it. or Yeah, like exactly. So one of the things that they thought they, they would test out is could you tell from taking a sample of tea from an area... Yeah. Could you look through it with the eDNA method and work out how many different species have been landing on the plants, peeing on the plants, chewing on the plants, Mm. doing whatever it is Mm. on the plants? And if you could do that and you could get that information, then you could look to, let's say, plants that are hidden in museums from the same area from years ago. And you would be able to tell, is there a decrease in the population? Is there an increase? So clever. You could look at other... It's an interesting way of then looking at how pesticides can travel across the world on boats and so on and become a pest somewhere else. You can then suddenly notice by testing tea leaves from, say, Bali, you'd be like, hang on a second, there's, there's a sudden showing up of this invasive pest, which they don't have here. And they can get on top of it before it then takes over. Is it clever or is it lazy? Is it just a scientist saying, I could well, go to Bali or India and investigate this, or I could pop to Asda, it could be, pick it up can, some beauty tips? It could be both, can't it? Often the clever thing to do is the lazy thing because you're saving resources. Very good point, mm. yeah. Mm. But, well that, but that is what literally they were doing. They were popping to their local grocery stores and they were just buying teas from around yeah. the world. I think it's um, what's amazing, because the Trier, this university in Germany, right? That one of the reasons that this is such a good place to study this is that Trier has a specimen bank and the role of the specimen bank is just to collect leaves from different trees across Germany (laughs) and they've been doing it for 35 years they've been doing it for decades I'm not sure what their original justification was can they come and do it in my garden (laughs) yeah they can for a fee and they, they freeze the leaves in liquid nitrogen so there's this German specimen bank, which is just a load of leaves in liquid nitrogen. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. Well, and they've just gone, we know this will come in handy one day. And one it has. Day. And, and it has. has. Yeah. It genuinely has. It's Amazing. unbelievable. Yeah. Um, the reason the tea is so useful is that if you take a leaf from a herbarium, you know, it's, a, it's a samples of ancient plants, 
that what they do is they keep leaves dark and dry basically to mm. keep them in a kind of suspended animation and that is basically the same process as making tea because you're drying the leaves out mm. you're shredding them up and you're just keeping them in kind of suspended animation in a tea bag and so that it's perfect to test that yeah. as opposed to herbarium clever it's amazing and uh, Krem Winkle, this guy, he says that probably... Straight out of a Hans Christian Andersen novel. <laughs> yes. He said, little boy, little girl, come to my tea emporium. No, he didn't. Follow He's... the trail of tea bags I've left. He said probably 99.999% or something like this of DNA which we extract is the tea DNA and only a tiny fraction of what's left is from insects. And he says, which of course is good for tea drinkers because they want to drink the tea and not the insects. Mm. So, you know. I know I do but he yeah. says that actually it's quite good to know that there's some tiny bits of arthropod DNA because yeah. that shows that they haven't used really loads and loads of pesticides mm. yeah so that's yeah. kind of clever yeah. yeah and if you want to um, try it yourself contribute to his research he claims um, that you can dry your own plants. Now, I don't know if he's actually accepting these specimens, <laughs> but he says if you want to dry your own plants, and I thought this was quite cool, mm. um, you just need, you can get like a Ziploc bag um, sourced from some diver, presumably, and um, <laughs> then you dry plants out by just popping in one of those weird silica packets that yeah. you get inside. Um, oh, uh, I always eat those. <laughs> <laughs> Um, That's really funny. <laughs> um, eDNA. Oh yeah. It floats in air. If you just take if you take an air sample, there will be mm. tiny, tiny amounts of eDNA floating in it. Um, so, like, if someone comes into this room later today after we've gone home, yeah. and they took a jam jar of air, they'd be able to get bits of our DNA. From Pretty it, much. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's, amazing. it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, but this led me on to another fact, and this was actually sent to us by a listener recently called Andrew Ferguson. So thank you to Andrew for this, and. You, you might find this fact familiar, but it's that on a windy day in San Francisco <laughs> Zoo, strands of giraffe semen can be found floating on the breeze. Yeah, I remember that fact. Now that yeah. was posted on the QI boards by James 12 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and it's based on an interview with a zookeeper yeah. at San Francisco. And I follow the link to the original interview with the zookeeper and it's no longer on no, the internet. They'll have suppressed that like Billy, <laughs> won't they? Because that will not do ticket sales any good. But I bet that's one of the facts that we must have posted a dozen times on the internet like, after <laughs> I found it because it's amazing. Yeah. And then it's just taken a life of its own. Yeah. <laughs> if you test the air in a zoo yeah. uh, with a jam jar, mm. you can work out which animals are in the zoo by using eDNA. What? How, how useful how incredibly useful I'm always going to the zoo and not being able to tell which animals are there yeah. well you know for instance you could get go to a zoo get a jam jar get a load of air close the jam jar take the air away go to um, a PCR uh, laboratory right. and then it will tell you right. that they have giraffes there brilliant so actually brilliant. interesting that's really that's really useful for when the sign is down yeah. at the giraffe enclosure London Zoo's actually done away with the guides now they just <laughs> hand you a jam jar on arrival it um, would be an incredibly good kind of like crap alternate zoo it's yeah. just the jam jar zoo it's the cheapskate parents visit to the zoo you don't cross the barriers you just scoop it to the jar take it home with your kids and go look there's giraffes in here well um, there are two studies that have found this uh, one in Denmark and one in England but one interesting part about it is that you can not only tell which species are in the zoo mm. but you can get DNA from the food that's fed to the animals so if you're feeding your giraffe like sausages 
then it would <laughs> collect the DNA from the voles as well, even though there aren't any voles in your zoo. Wow. And then you can get the zoo, I presume, shut down. Because <laughs> that feels like it breaches some rules, doesn't it? A vole oh, sausage? A vole that feels sausage. like it's an even better zoo now. In the jar. Exactly. Because you know, you're, you're getting more animals than you. Yeah. 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 I don't think... Has anyone, does anyone eat vole? That, I've then, never. There's I've not never. much meat on a vole, I don't no, think. No, no. no. You need to be quite desperate. Heston's probably done it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you got other eDNA stuff? I'd have to uh, stuff. Not good stuff. <laughs> cool. Great. <laughs> I got some stuff about voles. <laughs> um, there was an area of the UK where they used eDNA in the water and they found that there must be some water voles there by looking at the eDNA. Oh, yeah. And then a bit later, they put a kind of video camera up and found that there was water voles there. Oh. So it just shows that it works. Great. Okay, good that's good. I thought you were going to say it was just giraffes having a picnic. Sorry, go on. I was looking at the relationships between tea and animals, oh, yeah. uh, you know, like tea pests. Um, oh, yeah. And there's actually certain types of tea which rely on tea pests to be made. Oh, yeah. There's the tea green leaf hopper, which is one of the main attackers <laughs> of the tea plant. Also has lots of other names. It's called the tea jacid or smoke boy or jumping boy. And actually you get special tea which um, waits for the tea green leaf hopper to attack it because then tea releases these chemicals. It releases very specific chemicals depending on what it knows is attacking it. And the chemicals it releases when it's attacked by this creature actually make the tea taste quite nice. Wow. So if you get it at the right time, you get, um, mm. for instance, something called dong ding oolong. <laughs> Um, tea, which actually, actually I think it's pronounced tung ting, but I like the idea of changing the phrase ding dong yeah. to dong ding. It's like, you know, what's he called? Leslie Phillips. Leslie yeah, Phillips. Leslie Phillips yeah. If Leslie Phillips goes through that layer of salt water, <laughs> oh, yeah. he goes dong ding. <laughs> dong ding. <laughs> and if you need to know who Leslie Phillips is, if you don't know who Leslie Phillips is, then why are you listening to this podcast? Yeah, we can't exactly. help you. Yeah. <laughs> That's very anyway, cool. apparently it tastes Go- like honey. Google HQs can freak their nuts when they see the spike on <laughs> Leslie Phillips searches later on. It's been a Leslie Phillips event. Um, uh, the um, shot hole borer is uh, a tea pest. Ooh. Shot hole, I said. Um, its Latin name is Eualacea fornicatus. Oh dear. <laughs> do you, want, oh dear, do you oh know dear. how it got the name fornicatus? Anyone can guess? It was the only, it was the first specimen found in the act of having sex. Was it shagging the scientist as he discovered what? it? No, it's because the word fornicate means arch shaped. Does it really? Um, it does. Fornix in Latin means arch. Oh. And so it's nothing to do with fornication, as oh. you guys thought, apart from that the word fornix also meant brothel. Oh. <laughs> because brothels were often found in vaults. Mm. Oh, wow. And that's why we get the word fornication. That's so interesting. That is a great. So if you're not actually in a vault, it doesn't count as fornicating. <laughs> I'm not. hearing a legal loophole here. <laughs> <laughs> Your Honour. <laughs> May I present the flat roof, <laughs> which exonerates my client. <laughs> um, one of the guys responsible for tea, uh, particularly Assam tea, was oh, yeah. Robert the Bruce. Mm, oh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Specifically, a Scottish man called Robert Bruce. Oh, come oh, on. Sorry. Nice. Middle name there. I don't suppose <laughs> now. He's just Robert Bruce. 
He was a Scottish man who was in India in the 1820s. And um, his story is quite boring, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no spiders involved, <laughs> no <laughs> battles. He does share a moderately common name with a great <laughs> Scottish hero. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. But not the same, but similar. 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 Yeah. 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 Great. Um, I was I've really just saved us all a minute of time, actually. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, I was reading about ways that farmers try to avoid using pesticides and yeah. use nature or whatever they can in order to help their crops. And uh, one of the methods that's used is there's an army of ducks that people hire in order to eat all of the pests. So quite famously in Cape Town in South Africa, there's a wine estate where they employ around 2000 ducks that every morning they walk from their little duck homes all the way to um, the, the vineyard and the ducks spend a full day there. Uh, just eating all of the worms and all of the Why don't they the keep pests? the ducks next to the vineyards so they don't need to walk all the way from their duck <laughs> well, to the It's the cost of accommodation, isn't yeah. it? It's, you know, you can't, <laughs> okay. You've got to commute sometimes. And you want to separate work from personal life as well. Yeah, because, really. yeah, they get up at 7am, they all march as one uh, to work <laughs> at 10.30. Uh, they spend the day eating the snails and the pests um, back home by 4pm. 10.30 till 4? Um, yeah. Come on. Oh, bloody hell. Uh, I, know. I think they should, actually the bosses should be cracking the whip a bit more. <laughs> well, they're back they're, home by 4, they leave at 7 30. No, no, no. They get up at 7. Right. They go to work at 10.30. They're back by 4. So they're knocking off at 2.30, I'd say. <laughs> but here's the thing as well. So these are uh, runner ducks. And so what it means is that they've got great speed on them. So if they see a snail going for a leaf, oh, they can yeah. get there before an ordi- it does. An ordinary duck, there's no way it could catch a snail. You need a special runner duck. <laughs> so here's the thing, though. They have to hire, along with the ducks, to come with them, a bunch of geese who act as bodyguards to the oh, ducks. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Because... This is a cartoon. You know, this, this is something I've seen babies. This is, this this is the old woman who swallowed a fly, some warped version of it. Who's guarding the geese? The old woman who hired a duck. <laughs> what so, the fuck? She hired a duck. <laughs> so the problem is, is that the ducks get spooked really easily if they're eating the snails and so on. Let's say an owl comes by. Right. And, and, oh, yeah. and a geese's job is to scare away the owls and all the other right. animals that come in. That Because apparently as soon as a duck sees an owl it just freaks out and they all go scattering and running away it causes chaos so yeah but here's the thing it's used for many different kinds of fields and farms Mm. uh, but the one thing it's not used for is for tea leaves and it's because you have to pick something that the ducks themselves aren't going to want to eat and they apparently love tea Damn. leaves. Damn. So I cannot so- believe the climax of this story is that tea is the one thing that does not involve <laughs> well, a- this very convoluted process. <laughs> and the really interesting thing is this is nothing to do with what we're talking about. It is. This is a pest control, but they can't use it for tea leaves. You know what okay. I saved us a minute earlier? <laughs> by not talking about Robert the Bruce. Oh my Thank God. You, Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Anna. My fact is that the first railway in Greenland was built to transport a meteorite. Hmm. Uh, first and and one of the only I think lots of places say the only but James I think you might have found some other rogue railways in Greenland oh yeah I found all sorts uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be the Greenland railway section later but um, <laughs> this is a, a really interesting story which I found after some seriously in-depth Research actually took me ages to get there, but eventually on the back of an innocent smoothie bottle <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hannah yeah 
Why are we getting our facts from Innocent Smoothie Bottles? Look, I read this and I thought, Because Anna's clearly got a side hustle <laughs> advertising deal with Innocent Smoothie. I'm not saying that it's any better or worse than other smoothies, but um, it wasn't where the fact came from, but it's, it led me to it because okay. it said, oh. In 1894, an explorer found a meteorite on the sensibly named Meteorite Island funny bit of humor from innocent mm. um he decided to take it home because it's the biggest ever but weighing 58 tons it took three years and a new <laughs> railway to get it back uh, while it got there in the end this guy's story has taught us a lot mainly that it's better to stick to the lighter things in life innocent smoothies have 30 percent lighter on natural sugar this smoothie is a lot easier to carry home than a meteorite that's a shoehorn isn't it rock on yeah. that's a shoe <laughs> oh it's an amazing fact that the brontes all died from drinking graveyard water <laughs> what that reminds us at innocence <laughs> is that actually life is not never-ending and you should enjoy every second of it and why not enjoy the next few seconds by having this delicious <laughs> innocent smoothie I, mean, I thought it was one of the best crowbars I've ever seen. Have you tried? Actually, have you tried the innocent um, graveyard smoothie? It's, um, it's an acquired taste. A lot of body. A lot of body. <laughs> anyway, so I thought that's what the hell are they talking about? That's absolutely loopy. Yeah. Um, but then no, looked looked into it, and this was um, from an expedition in the 1890s into Greenland. It was by the explorer Robert Peary, and he was led by Inuit guides to a meteorite that people have been hearing about for almost a hundred years um, but hadn't quite been able to track down so the Inuits knew where it was and used it a lot as I'm sure we'll talk about and other Europeans had got there tried to find it eventually he found it and the biggest piece which is called Anighito was so heavy that he had to construct kind of a little railroad by um, laying down lots of timber and then putting steel rail tracks I think it was sort of too many bits because he had to build one bit of railroad road to sort of push it up the hill then they rolled it down the hill to the harbour and then once on the coastline then they had to build another railroad over a bridge that they constructed to get it onto the boat. Wow. It's amazing. He went to enormous lengths to steal this quite important artifact. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So that's yeah. one way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's not a quick heist, is it? It's it's quite noticeable. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he took all three, I think. Yes, and I he think, did. Are they still to this day at the American Museum so of Natural Natural History? They're in different places, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. One of the, them is. The biggest one is in the American Museum of Natural History. And it's yeah. tens yeah. of tons. Yeah. And this name really... means tent, didn't doesn't it? And yes. then he took the other two slightly smaller ones called dog and woman. Yeah. And um, the people there, they had hammer stones and they would chip off bits of the ore and that would allow them to put tips on their spears and that kind of thing. It was the sole source of metal, right? In, yeah. Uh, yeah. In the Arctic. Yeah. But yeah, he did, he did steal it. And um, when he got back to New York, um, he made a lot of money off of it. He sold it for $40,000, which is roughly 1.3 mil in today's money okay. the equivalent okay. but before he did that when the boat docked he'd set it up as like a circus thing where you would come mm -hmm. and visit to see come oh, see the yeah, meteorite yeah. and he would charge a quarter for every person it just looks like a rock it's yeah, moderately but, um, more exciting than your jar of eDNA at the zoo for the kids, <laughs> but still, it's a big rock. But 20,000 20, people went to see that, and he charged them a quarter apiece to go and touch it or have a look at it. And so that's about $5,000 at the time, which again is about $150,000. So he became bad. very rich off his stolen item. When he sold them, he was he was selling them to raise the money for another journey north. That, that's what he was using mm. the money for. Yeah, he was, he was desperate to get to the North Pole, really, He was desperate he? to get to the North Pole, basically. There were claims for a long time that Peary was the first guy to get to the North Pole. Yeah. And those claims are not true. <gasps> he did not make it. Oh, well, you're saying categorically, sure, Howie. I'm, I mean, I am on your side here. He, but... Yeah. Well, okay. Um, 
All right, let's put it this way, right? His triumphant expedition to the North Pole, as okay, we're calling yeah, it, yeah. Uh, was in 1909. And the evidence is as follows. Uh, the only people who witnessed him are four Inuit people who were all sworn to secrecy and his manservant, Matthew Henson. Um, his diary was inconsistent. He didn't record the readings that would have proved where he got to. He also was a 54-year-old man with no toes uh, due to frostbite. <laughs> he would have had to manage three times the average speed the expedition had achieved earlier on under less difficult conditions. That record has never been equaled in the history of Arctic exploration. <laughs> he would have had to travel 70 miles a day. No explorer has ever covered this ground over the same number of days. Um, it, ju- it just He didn't get there. If he had got there... It's not even him who really did it. It was Matthew Henson, Absolutely. who was yeah. his, yeah. his partner, who is uh, sort of got shunned from history and from that trip yeah. to the point where he was sort of seen as a manservant. They were partners and they were, he was an amazing explorer himself, Matthew yeah. Henson. It was because he was black that he was sort of not given the credit. Yeah. Um, the, there's lots of thoughts about whether or not he got there, but Wally Herbert is the British expedition leader who went there to try and use the calculations to see if he managed it. He claims that he didn't, but in the process of doing it, Wally Herbert then claimed to be the first person to do it. Oh, do we believe? But do we well, believe I think Wally Wally Herbert is definitely a legit explorer. Whether or not his claim that Peary didn't make it is true or not is different. I think right. I think he definitely made it. But what's amazing is when you travel and you're trying to get to the North Pole, the problem is is that you're on a moving body of land, mm. aren't you? Mm-hmm. The ice is just constantly moving. So when Wally Herbert was trying to get there, you would take a, a reading of where you were after an hour, and suddenly you were eight kilometers further away than oh, you were no. because oh, of the way the ice was shifting but the thing is like he was what at the very end i remember reading he was something like was it like 130 meters from the north pole and he was kind of on his hands and knees but luckily some small fishes had made holes (laughs) (laughs) drag himself (laughs) so one of the amazing things with wally is that he um i think they even passed it at one point and not realized like when they were having a sleep they Uh, sort of just they just like the the drift took them over yeah so they woke up and they realized that it was achievable to get to in the day so they sent a telegram to the queen saying your majesty we have got to the north pole and the first british to do it risky yeah if they haven't actually done it because they hadn't actually done it and the rest of the day became a chase to get there so that the telegram (laughs) wasn't a lie (laughs) and they managed it but just they only just it's good to set yourself these challenges sometimes if you've got a deadline yeah absolutely i often say yes i've researched three of the four facts for this week's show that's all fine (laughs) (laughs) but it is in america it's very controversial because they you know what peary well peary got there in he a lot didn't. of people's opinions and to well, say it opinions don't we'll get, count he didn't well, well you're going to be getting a lot of emails <laughs> podcast at qi.com bring them it's on all, I'll be surprised if the emails make it to my inbox I imagine they'll stop about 70 miles short <laughs> <laughs> it was all kind of unedifying I think it was that real desperation for fame and glory and it was so competitive and like you say with yeah. Henson Henson probably if they did get there Henson claimed to have got there first so Henson went for a stroll I think when they were at what they thought was roughly the North Pole and then Henson came back this is according to Henson's diaries Henson came back and was like oh wow so cool I'm pretty sure I just wandered over to it and I was the first person to be sitting on top of the world what a, what a dick move and just going to go for a quick uh... well then so Peary's like what a dick move and so he snuck off took two of the Inuit guides of the four snuck off and found his own way to what was his How own do you North sneak pole? off in a completely featureless environment that's almost that's more impressive actually to find a way of sneaking there's one big tree just in behind it period doesn't seem like a great guy in a number of ways it's weird because I haven't got that from you that you think that so one of the other things he did and this this really is the, the truly shabby thing so he persuaded in 1897 which was his um, that was the uh, meteorite nicking uh, trip Moment. 
uh, heist. Um, he persuaded six Inuit people to return with him to America, kind of so that they could be sort of put on stage as part of a lecture series. Um, four of them died shortly after arriving uh, of TB, and the youngest one was called Minnick, and he was adopted by an American family. Minnick was given an American name. He was named Minnick Peary Wallace. Uh, and several years later, many years later, he uh, was at the American Museum of Natural History and he came across some bones in the ethnographic department, which were his, was his father's skeleton, Breaking. which Peary had simply sold to the museum as a kind of yeah. display piece. Minnick obviously wanted <laughs> and fought very hard to have the skeletons returned for a ritual burial. Uh, the museum refused and um, Peary eventually paid for Minnick to go home but the family's skeletons weren't released and buried in Greenland until 1993 yeah. cool. but did you see that they, they gave him a fake burial first Yeah. so, so when Minnick came over uh, and his father died and Minnick said I need to bury him with the proper Inuit rituals right. um, they gave him a bit massive log wearing sort of big furs disguised as his dad disguised as sort of shoved yeah. a head on I suppose yeah yeah they pretended it was his dad they yeah. were burying I guess maybe you don't get up too close um, yeah so he thought he buried his dad and it was a few years yeah. later I think when was he was like oh, can I, I tell it? you about another railway on Greenland because <laughs> this is all getting a bit dark yes, yes. 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 good idea good idea there's basically a few that have been built and they're mostly like small ones just to transport fish from you know the <laughs> fishing place to the place where people live they're not very big you know it's yeah. not like a huge railway going through the country but it's not a tiny one where like carriages for fish you, no. the fish sits in a tiny fish Adorable. chair yeah. yeah it's not that Damn. Um, but there's a coal railway uh, in Greenland and it's on Disco Island oh. <laughs> which Disco Island is the second largest island in Greenland after the main one and it's one of the hundred largest islands in the world but I'd never heard of it really? until this week Disco, Disco Island. Island can any of you guess yep. how Disco Island <laughs> got its name it's in Greenland. I mean, this feels like another Fornican's trap, doesn't oh, it? Yeah. It's, um, I mean, yeah. Disco. It's completely circular. It's shaped like a disc. One theory. The it's... people there, they do the Macarena. That's where we got the Macarena. Yes. That's not a common theory. The and also the Macarena. Light Sorry. bounces <laughs> off the snow, much ah, like a disco ball. Very with... good. Not a theory. Oh. Uh, rounded is a theory. Okay. Uh, another one is that it's short for Discovery Island. Another one is that the mountains are quite flat on it, so they look like desks. Desco Island. Island. But the most common (laughs) is probably that it was named after a guy called Marmaduke. He was an English explorer and whaler, and that it was originally called Ducky's Island, and then Ducko's Island, and then Dicko's Island, and then Dusko's Island, and eventually Disco Island. Wow. Okay, so it's not the next Magaluf. If anyone spotted it on a map and put the tickets. I got one more fact on Peary. Uh, Explorer Robert Peary brought Vaseline to the North Pole to protect his skin from chafing and his mechanical equipment from rusting. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I found this fact on a Twitter site called at Vaseline Facts, um, oh, which okay. is yeah, which is a great handle. Unfortunately, it only lasted for three tweets. <laughs> um, and, uh, Have you got the others? Um, I got yeah, but they're uh, they're not really that interesting. <laughs> I, so the, the word Vaseline derives from the German word Wasser, water, and the Greek word Alion, yeah, olive oil. Did they do the one about how in? South America, the movie Greece was called Vaseline. Vaseline. Oh, yeah. they should have. They should have, but no, they didn't. They kind of just ran out after three, and the only interaction that this Twitter account at Vaseline Facts had yeah. was just one response to their tweets, which after the one I just told you about um, how it got its yeah. name, 
uh, someone just wrote back saying didn't ask and that was <laughs> and that was from at fuck vaseline facts um, wow <laughs> To be honest, if I'd if I'd set up and then instantly got a reply from at fuck Andrew Hunter M, I would have stopped immediately. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, James at James Harkin, and Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at No Such Thing, or you can go to our website, No Such Thing as a Fish.com. All the previous episodes are up there. There's links to our upcoming tour dates. Do check them out if we're coming to a city near you. We'd love to see you. Also, if you don't like the adverts that you heard over the course of this episode, guess what? There's a new option to get rid of them. You can join Clubfish either on the iTunes player, there's an option where you can subscribe to that, or you can go to our new Patreon page where, as well as ad-free episodes, we're going to have things like bonus content where we do extra shows where Andy curates the mailbag. All the interesting <laughs> questions and facts that you've sent in will be answering. That will be hidden in Clubfish, so do check it out. It's going to be fun. Otherwise, just keep listening here. Podcast will remain free. We'll be back next week with another one of these. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.